0: Good morning. My name is Matthew. I'm the student ministries pastor. I was actually going to dismiss the kids, but they were like way on top of it. So I love that we started this message today by first giving a idea of what Advent means, because sometimes in the world of the church, we sometimes will throw terms around just assuming that we're all on the same page. And sometimes we're not. And there's sometimes just not a great time to ask. And so Advent is a really special time in the season of the church. Because at Advent, we are celebrating the arrival of something or someone notable. That's just the brief definition if you were to Google it. And so at Christmas time, the season starting today around the globe, churches are coming together to worship the coming of Christ, the birth of Jesus, because that really did change everything. That is the Advent that we celebrate. And so today, you'll notice we lit a candle. Every week we'll light a new candle, each candle symbolizing something different about the birth of Christ, a theme, a part of the story, and today we start with the topic of hope. Hope is one of those things that feels like it's in short supply, like it's a vanishing commodity, like there's just not enough to go around, and what ends up happening is we look down the tunnel and we see a light and we can't tell whether it's the end or if it's a train. And in the last few years, I've heard on more than one occasion, someone exclaimed something along these lines. The world just seems to be getting worse. Seems to be falling apart. There's more division and anger than when I was a kid or when I remember. And the reality is the world isn't necessarily getting worse. It's just that we're losing hope. We're losing something that can tether us to the reality that there is more out there than just what we see. And so at Christmas time we come into this room with a whole lot of emotions. Some of you come in here with anticipation and exuberance and excitement about what the season can hold, and some of you don't come in with that emotion. You come in with sadness for what was lost, sadness for all the years that were left behind, all of the memories that aren't so good. And so Christmas tends to be a loaded term. Some of you might think of memory, some of you might think of certain clothes or songs or foods that you'll eat traditions and things that you would do. For me, when I think about Christmas, the first thing that comes to my mind is a little cartoon special called The Charlie Brown Christmas. My family and I watched it every single year um, to the point where I could recite most of the dialogue. Um, I was that annoying kid at any party who, before the line would happen, I would say it um, as if we weren't going to hear it in a second. And so I love *A Charlie Brown Christmas. And if you're unfamiliar, here's some homework. When you go home today... Before you watch the uh, football game, since the Lions aren't on, watch Charlie Brown Christmas. It's great. But the story, in short, goes like this There's a character named Charlie Brown, and he is saddened at the reality that when he looks around at the world, all he sees at Christmas time is consumerism. All he sees is people who are concerned with buying and accumulating more stuff. And that saddens him because there has to be more to Christmas than just buying stuff and receiving gifts, right? There has to be more to life than that. And so somewhere along the line, Charlie Brown is asked to run the local Christmas pageant. And he gets all of his friends together with zero adult supervision, which is a bad idea. And everything that can go wrong goes wrong. And in the climactic moment, Charlie Brown exclaims in front of all of his friends, I guess I just don't know what Christmas is all about. And his friend Linus takes the stage He says, I can tell you what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And he goes on to tell the story of Luke chapter 2 about the angels approaching the shepherds, telling them about this good news of great joy about the birth of Jesus. And at the end, the lights dim, and he looks at Charlie Brown and he says, That's what Christmas is all about. Now, at a surface level, this Christmas special should have been an astronomical failure. Came out in the mid 1960s, aired on NBC. And even the creator, Charles Schultz, when watching the final product, the final edit, said, this will never air again. And those were in the days where streaming wasn't a thing, and so if you didn't catch it on TV and it wasn't successful, you would never see it again. It would just be that fleeting memory in the back of your mind about that one weird Christmas special. And there was nothing about it that should have been a success, right? It's about somber kids asking really important questions about life and religion and the meaning of Christmas. It's a jazz-driven soundtrack where things like Rudolph and Frosty were a little more upbeat, and it has a very blatant Christian message. However, it wasn't a failure. Charlie Brown Christmas actually went on to be one of the most prolific Christmas specials to ever air on TV, spawning over 60 different specials, several different books, two Broadway musicals, and three Charlie Brown conventions that I've been to. I had a huge collection, and by had, I mean have. So the point is, this resonated with people, and it became a phenomenon that led a lot of sociologists to ask, why did this seemingly epic failure on paper turn out to connect with so many people? And the truth of the matter is, because it touches on the desire for there to be hope in this world. Beyond just the earthly things that we strive after, like ambition and success and more stuff, After the next high, the next good feeling, there has to be more than that. And it came in the voice of a child, which is interesting. Most adults were more perceptive to the underlying messages. But it has continued to be aired for well over 30 years, and now you can find it on streaming services like Apple TV. The point is... That a Charlie Brown Christmas resonated with people because it touched on the desire and the longing within all of us to find hope outside of this world, to find hope in something eternal, not temporary, and more specifically, to find it in Christ, a message that has continued to resonate for, well, decades, but also hundreds of years if we were to look at the Bible. And so today, what I want to do is I want to talk about this theme of hope, the first Advent candle for us. Because in a world that seems hopeless, I truly do believe that the birth of Christ offers us hope. I truly do believe that the birth of Christ is the hope that we can hold on to in tumultuous times, in times of trials and difficulties. And so to do that, we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So we're going to turn to it now. It says this in verse 18, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. But he did not consummate their marriage until she had given birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Now there's a lot we could talk about. My original draft was two and a half hours long. I've tailored that down to three points instead of seven. So the points I want to make is that this message in Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25, was hope not only for the first century people hearing this message. It's also hope for us. The same hope that was for the first century Jewish people is the same hope that is there for us as well. And so the first point I have for us is that there's a hope for restoration. You see, one of the reasons why this passage often gets overlooked is because it starts with a relatively lengthy 17 verses of a genealogy. If you don't know what a genealogy is, it's literally just a family ancestry. This person had this person, this person had that person. It's extremely boring. And that's coming from a Bible nerd, okay? So people often skip over Matthew chapter 1, but the truth that lies in it is so powerful. But Before we go there, I grew up with um, a nativity set that my mom owned that I loved. Actually, I spent a lot of time on Google to find this picture, which is just like this. Every year, my mom would pick one of me or my brothers to set up the nativity set. And we'd put it on either the fireplace mantle or we'd put it on the hutch in the living room. Or one year she put it in the hallway near the door as like a passive evangelism to the UPS driver. Like, do you want to talk about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? (coughs) But I love my mom's nativity. So much so that she actually bought me my own. Uh, It was a Charlie Brown nativity, actually. Again, huge collection. I also want to point out that the birth of Jesus is depicted as the bird Woodstock. The little sacrilegious. But I set this up on my bookshelf in my room. So if you entered my room, you had to see it. And one day I was dusting like most 12 year olds do. I was dusting my room and I knocked over Mary and she fell to the ground and broke into several pieces. And I was devastated because this was one of my prized possessions. And I remember picking up the pieces of this broken Mary and being devastated, but relieved because for the first time in my life, I could relate to Mary As I was a good kid, I didn't break a lot of rules. I was a pretty type A rule follower. I'm still that way. Aaron can attest. But even I knew that I wasn't perfect. I was broken. I'd made mistakes and they weren't big mistakes. I was 12. But I made mistakes. I had misdeeds, missteps, times where I had just let my family down or let God down or let myself down. And holding the broken Mary in my hands. For the first time, I realized something. She was human. Just like we are. Sometimes we do this disservice. By the way, guys, I'm getting over a cold. Give me a second. Ooh. Okay. Sometimes we do ourselves a disservice when we're looking at the Bible because we create these characters in our minds as if they're fairy tale characters. Distant and far off. And we act as if they had no real problems, that they were so perfect. But in actuality, the nativity depicts a bunch of real people going through real situations, facing real problems. Mary and Joseph are a perfect example. They're engaged to be married, and engagements were different. (laughs) Engagements were different at that time. They weren't a proclamation we made of love, sealed with a ring, they were a deal made between a prospective husband. They would go to the father of the daughter they wanted to marry and say, can I make a deal? I want to marry your daughter. And it would be a transferal of collateral like land or livestock. And you'd enter this three-step process, engagement, where you create the deal, betrothal, where you are married without living together and how should I say this? Non-consummating, Right, They're not man and wife yet, but they are married legally. And then the last step was two, becoming one flesh. Mary and Joseph are at the betrothal stage. They're married, but they're not living together. But the problem is Mary's pregnant. She's not supposed to be pregnant. They're not living together. They're not man and wife yet. And that would have been bad enough in that culture, but take into account that it's not Joseph's baby either. Which is even worse because in this day and age, if you were to be found uh, bearing a child out of wedlock that isn't your husband's, and there's at all the question of infidelity, the punishment was death. You'd be dragged into the streets, flogged and stoned. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, this is quite the bummer. This is quite the sad way to begin an Advent series, and it is. The reason why we start here, though, is because the roots of redemption are interwoven in our messy and broken situations. God does not steer clear of our brokenness. God doesn't stay far away at arm's distance from our pain and our messes. He enters into it to redeem it. If you were to look at the beginning of the chapter, the genealogy, you'll see this in chapter 1, verse 1 and 17. It says that this is the uh, genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, chapter 1, verse 1. I know it pretty much from heart. I could probably do it. But in that passage, it talks about this is the genealogy of Christ, and there's 14 generations from Abraham to, to, uh, yeah, this is it. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So all of the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah are 14 generations. If you were to do quick math, you would know that that's 42 generations of people. Within there, you will see some amazing success stories. You will see some of the big heroes of the Israelite faith, the Jewish faith, and our Old Testament. But you'll also see a lot of mistakes. Included in there are murder, rape, prostitution, incest, polygamy, lying, cheating. And that's literally the baggage of five people. I tell you that because these are real people. These are people who have experienced brokenness and pain. And sometimes we think that we're too far gone. We think, well, no way Jesus would ever love me. You don't know what I've done. And what I love about the genealogy of Christ is because Christ chose some of the most broken people to redeem his family. Redemption works through our brokenness. Jesus restores our brokenness. There's actually this beautiful art style in Japan called kintsugi. Kintsugi means golden joinery or golden repair. And what would happen is people would have these plates or bowls or cups This pottery, and when it would break, they'd go back to the potter and they'd say, Can you repair this? And what the potter started to do was to inlay gold or silver or platinum as like a very expensive crazy glue to bring it bring it together. And what happened over time is not only were these potters repairing the the broken pieces, what they were doing was they were creating something new. They were creating a new art that was more and more valuable and to the point where people were actually going home and breaking their pots and taking them and like, can you fix this? I saw this picture the other day, and it's a picture of Jesus performing kintsugi on a broken vase. And I realized that this is arguably one of the most beautiful depictions of what Christ offers to do in our lives. To take our broken pieces, all of the fractured edges, and repair them back together and create something new. We don't have to stay in the same broken cycles of sin, the same broken narratives that say that we're not worth loving, that we're not worth the time, that we're too far gone. We don't have to stay in those cycles. We get to start something new in Christ. We're restored in Christ. That was hope, not only for the first century Jews, but it's hope for us today that our story is not defined by our greatest failures, but it's defined by Christ. Our identity is not defined by what the world tells about ourselves. It's defined by Christ and the redemption that he is making happen in our lives. The second area of hope that we have in the story that would have been hope for the first century as it is for us is that the birth of Jesus was hope for a different kind of king. Again, if you were to look back at the genealogy, one thing you would notice is not only is it showing the ways that Christ works through the brokenness of people, it's also showing Christ's connection to the royal line. You'd actually start to notice some noteworthy names. And if you notice, our passage actually started with this line from Matthew 1.18. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came to be. The Messiah, like Advent, is one of those terms that we kind of just assume we're all on the same page. But it means a lot of stuff. And it depends on how we're using it. Messiah could mean Savior. It could mean Lord. It also means an anointed king. If you look at Jesus's genealogy, one of the things you'll notice is that Jesus uh, has David and Solomon in his lineage. This would have been a big deal to the people of Israel because despite their moral failings, which there are many, despite their failures in the past, David was known to be the greatest king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. Solomon was known to be the wise king of Israel. And so for anyone reading the story, they would have looked at it and saw uh, saw Solomon and David listed, and they would have said, this is our king. This is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. The one who's supposed to create a new reign, bring kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, to here, to earth. The crazy part is the king at the time, Herod, who was running that area, wasn't actually from royal lineage. He was just a military leader who got promoted because he was overzealous. The difference between Herod and Jesus is how they led. Herod was threatened by anyone who could take his power. And so he led from fear and from force. Anytime there was anyone who would threaten Herod's position, do you know what he would do? He would kill them. And that included his own children. He killed several of his own sons because he was terrified that someone would take his spot. He led from fear. Jesus led from agape love, not from force, not from fear. The Bible actually says perfect love drives out fear. And so Jesus came and led by example to show us there's a different way to do things. If you were to jump ahead in the gospel of Matthew to chapter five through seven, there's this part called the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the crazy parts about the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is teaching and he takes a bunch of these cultural norms, these mores that would have been held. And he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, What he's doing is he's taking what would have been the norm of the day and flipping it upside down and saying there's a better way to live. Just because something is normal doesn't make it right. We talked about this at youth group a couple weeks ago. That sometimes the things that we are called to do because we follow Jesus seems weird. Because it is. Part of the reason it's weird is because that's not how the world operates. The world doesn't operate from a place of agape love, a love that has no strings attached, that expects nothing in return. The world doesn't always operate from a place of forgiveness. The world doesn't always operate from a place of compassion and patience. But the way of Jesus is one that is entrenched in love love at all costs, not because people earned it, not because it was fair. It's why one of the most famous Bible verses that even non-Christians know is, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That wasn't earned. We didn't do anything to earn that. But God loved us anyways, and from that love, we love. It says, we love because God loved us. And so my thought for us, my prayer for us, and hope today is that we live into this different style of kingdom, this kingdom of heaven on earth. Because one of the beautiful things about following Jesus is we're expected to be an ambassador of that way of life, of this new kingdom to our communities, to our homes. Which means if we follow Jesus, we can't just believe the right things. That's not enough. We have to live like Christ, right? It's not enough to just say Jesus is Lord unless you live like Jesus is your Lord. I was driving the other day and the song Joy to the World came on the radio. I love that song. I've heard it probably a hundred times. Enough that I don't even think about the words anymore. But I can sing most of them. And for some reason, the first stanza stuck out to me. It said, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. My question for us today in this room is, have we prepared room for Jesus to be the king of our life? Because if we haven't, we end up just saying the right stuff without living the right way. Is Jesus the king of your life? Because if he is, we have hope in a new way of doing life, a better way of doing life that is ensteeped steeped in the kingdom. The third hope that would have come up in the first century that is still a hope for us is hope for the good news. Sometimes you'll hear uh, people talk about the gospel according to Matthew or the gospel according to Luke or the gospel about Jesus Christ. The gospel word means the good news. So you could hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And so when you're hearing the story, you're like, well, what good news is there in the story? I'll tell you, when I was in high school, um, when we were in small group and youth group, one of the things that we would do is anytime we didn't know the answer to something, I know this is going to happen at youth group tonight. Anytime we didn't know the answer, we'd just say Jesus facetiously because we assumed it had to be right. Sometimes it was. This is one of those times. What's the good news of the Bible? Jesus. That's it. Sometimes things are so simple, it seems wrong, but it's right. The good news that the Christmas story is telling us is that Jesus is here. That's it. You can even look. There's this really interesting moment. Joseph is at a point where he's trying to decide whether he's going to divorce his wife because she's pregnant and it's not his And he has a dream, and the angel comes to him in the dream. And says this, hearkening back to what the prophet Isaiah said, said, at this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This would have been a really important moment, because not only is Joseph hearing about the prophet, reality that Jesus is going to be born. that He gets to be a part of it. But more than that, he's hearing that Jesus is Emmanuel. That's a term that would have immediately clicked in his mind because he would have remembered what the prophets had said. That the Emmanuel God was the God that would come and save them. Now, the saving they had in their mind might not be the same saving that Jesus meant. They thought they might get saved from the oppression they were experiencing from people like Rome. But the reality still remains, this was a symbol of hope. Because you have to understand the context. At this point in time, the people of Israel had been exiled twice by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The kingdom of Israel had been split. There was a northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was Judah where Jerusalem was. And in Jerusalem was the temple. And so when the Israelites were exiled from Jerusalem, they weren't only being exiled from their homes, they were also being exiled from the temple. Which might not sound like a problem. Some of you are like, I don't mind being exiled from church. Um, But it was. It was a big deal because for the Jewish people, they didn't know yet that you could experience God outside of the temple. Their thought process was to be in relationship with God, you have to go to the temple. That's where we go to pray. That's where we go to sacrifice. That's where we go to worship. And so they weren't only being taken from their homeland. They weren't only being taken from their families or their business. They were being taken from their God. And so in this exile that happened several times, God would send prophets to encourage and give them hope. And in their exile, one of the things that God is constantly reminding the people of Israel through people like Jeremiah and Isaiah is that a savior is coming. A Messiah is coming. Someone who is a new king who will lead you to the right way of life. But you have to wait. That's why we celebrate Advent. That's why things fall off things. Right? Because we're waiting. No. That's why we celebrate Advent. We celebrate because the people of God waited for a savior. They were waiting for the arrival of the King. And Joseph is the first person outside of Mary who is told that the wait is over. Jesus is here. Salvation and redemption is available. We don't have to wait any longer. We don't have to jump through hoops. The Jewish people had this concept that they had to go find God. And for the first time ever, Joseph is being told, God came and found us. That is the hope of Christmas That is what we celebrate at Christmas. The fact that Jesus is here. So as we go out into our communities, our neighborhoods, our homes, and our workplaces this week, what will this change? What will be different this Christmas than any other? What hope will we feel? And I want to contend that if you allow God to restore your story, if you allow God to redeem your life and your family, amazing things will happen. If you allow God to be the king of your heart, create room and prepare a space for him, we will start to live as reflections and as embodiments of the love that God has shown us. And I'll tell you what, that love changed the world 2,000 years ago. I think it could today too. So as we conclude today, what is the good news? Jesus is here. And that is what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for the ability to be in this space and worship you. God, I pray for us that we continue to let you redeem our story, to work in us a restoration and a reconciliation where we become an embodiment of the love and grace that you've shown us where we can go into our communities and be a reflection of Christ to our coworkers, to our neighbors, where we can add more love into this world and less hate and division. Let us be a beacon of hope through our relationship with you and God help us to embrace the good news that Jesus is here that we don't have to wait any longer that we serve an Emmanuel God who is here with us. That even in the darkest times when we feel alone, when we feel unlovable, when we feel like no one understands us, that you were willing to come find us rather than wait for us to come find you. Today, may you redeem our story. And may we be an ambassador of your love to our communities. Amen.